1: Now, in this context, when Paul is talking to the Jews, because that's the primary object of this part of it, although it's a wider audience, but right now he's speaking about the Jews. When he said the law, the question is, is what law? Which laws? How many laws? Where in the Bible? How how do we really get this? Well, technically, you would have what we call the Decalogue. The Decalogue, deca means 10, like dozen means 12. Deca, 10. So if I'm going to talk about the 10 what? What would you think I'd be talking about? The 10 what in the law? Everyone, the 10... Commandments okay now do you know though that those ten Commandments are only a small portion of hundreds of other laws? do you, do you get that all right so once you understand that he's saying you are the ones here that rely upon the law now if they want to expand it, many Jewish people would see that the law would be encapsulated in primarily five books of the Old Testament. You would call those the Pentateuch. Penta means five, Pentateuch, the five books, the five books of the law, we might say. Because they're kind of sprinkled and repeated in there again and again. But basically, it's ten primary laws, and then it branches out from that. And I don't have time to go through the different kinds of laws and how they're faceted, but the law in general. Now, you'll have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That would be the law. So he says if you're relying upon the law, that can get you to heaven. Now, again, some of you might say, well, the laws, they're really good. Sometimes when you engage someone, they will say, you know, religions are really good. That's what really keeps society together are all these different religions, you know. We want to follow that. They've got good principles for life. I-, I shudder when I hear that because it sounds uh, low information first level. It sounds so good. But when I, when I run that kind of logic through um, history, I mean... Most of our wars were fought over different religious beliefs. Don't you agree with that? You know, so how can you say it brings society together, brings a society together against another society that's living their societal ways based on their religion of their whatever, and we got what we got. All right, so again, the law. All right, so... Some of you are saying, does that mean that the law is bad? You know, I don't want you to leave here today. You've got to come back next week because I'm going to show you the value of the Jewish people and all of that as it fits into the plan of God. You will hear that next week. But for right now, if you're relying upon your label, you're relying upon the law, you cannot have eternal life. Next week, we're going to learn at least two, the most two, most primary reasons for the law. So the law is good, the Bible says. The law has purpose, but again, the law can't get us into heaven. Let's step away from the law just a moment because some of you might not be sharing your faith with Jewish people. You might be sharing your faith with just some religious person out there. And they might have their set of law, like the Jews would say, we believe the law. What they're really generally saying is, you know, we are relying upon our book here. All right, That would be like a religious person that says, you know what, I, I have the Bible. I, I, I got the Bible. I, I, I'm a Christian. I, I'm going to heaven. I, I've got a Bible somewhere in my house, so I, I got it there. They might even be bragging so much and say, I even have the right translation of the Bible. Okay. Well, having a Bible, does that get you into heaven? No, it doesn't. This is not a ticket. We don't die and take this with us from the casket to the pearly gates and say, okay, punch it, Lord. I got it. I can come in now. This is... Great book, but in it it will give us the teaching of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, even said, you search the Scriptures, basically for salvation, but in it you're going to find me. They looked all over Scripture, but they didn't see that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that would pay for sin. So again, you can have the book, and it'll point you to Christ, but just having the law, having the book, will not ever give anyone eternal life, you or me or anyone else. So I encourage you to get a Bible. I encourage you to read it. But remember that the thread that goes from Genesis to Revelation, and I like to say from index to maps, that thread is the gospel, the blood of Jesus Christ that ties us all together. So, again, I'd be very careful about going up to someone. Are you a Christian? Yes, I have a Bible. Oh, you must be saved. Just because they have a Bible, they aren't saved. Now, let's say the person says, I do have a Bible. Sometimes I even ask them, do you have a Bible? I don't necessarily say, and do you read it? You know, because I don't want to be a condemnatory person. I, do you, what I like to say, they have a Bible. I said, would you mind if I showed you where in the Bible you could absolutely know how to get to heaven? Would you mind if I share that with you? And do you know what people, I haven't had anyone turn me down. They always say, well, y- y- yes, c- can you do that? I said, yes, I can. And where do I take them? I don't take them to the law. I just take them to John 3.16. And how does that go? For God so loved you that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in Christ would not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, let's go a little bit further in the the verse there. It says, and you bear the name Jew, and you rely upon the law, and you boast in God. Can you see who he's talking about this real religious person? you got the right name, you got the right book, and you even now brag about God. That means that they're counting upon what we might call a special standing with God. These are people that really feel like I am really close to God. I really have an understanding. I know God. Of course, um, the Jewish people would certainly do that. Why, Why wouldn't they do that? If you remember in the Old Testament it told the dads that their main responsibility was to love the Lord with all their heart, soul and mind that there was only one God and they had to have it in their heart and then once they had it in their heart they had to live that truth out by fulfilling the law and part of their responsibility was to take that truth and teach it to the next generation to their kids and it even taught them when they're to teach it how they're to teach them what they're to teach and then to have stuff all over their house on their face on the walls on the doorposts everywhere so that they were being taught. These kids grew up Growing up, we so much taught God's word that no wonder they would feel this, I know God. Now again, this is not to say anything about anyone in particular, but in general, just because a child is in a Christian home doesn't mean that he's a Christian, any more than if you go into a chicken coop, you're a chicken. Or you walk into a garage in your car. Or you join the Lions Club and you're a lion. Or Rotary Club and you're a rotor. And I'm going to stop. I can go on and on. But the point of the matter is none of that. We can't boast in any of our heritage. We can't boast in any of our race. It's all in Christ. And so what they're doing is I'm boasting to God. We have a hotline to God. That's not going to help anyone get to heaven. How much the Lord says that. And you know as I got looking at scripture. It's not always to the highfalutin, spiritually-minded people that God really spoke. In a few months, we are going to celebrate christmas and i'm really excited about it i'm excited because it starts with thanksgiving with a thankful heart so we know why we're going to celebrate christmas this place is going to turn into a kaleidoscope of color and decorations as we remember christ all of our events are our fun events that we'll be having but they're outreach minded to help people come to faith in christ but we're doing it together as a family wanting to touch other lives when i look at that i remember that the message of the birth of christ did not come to the priest's the message of the birth of Christ came to whom, everyone? Little shepherds. And shepherd guys were generally those that didn't have much education, pretty lazy. I mean, I know you had to take care of them, feed the sheep, make sure they didn't fall off a cliff, and the wolves didn't get them, all that kind of stuff. But really, they just kind of laid around most of the time and then brought them into the pen at night, that kind of thing. Yeah, they, they did their stuff. But think about people today that weren't your lawyers and doctors and butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. These were just simple, common, everyday people that had purpose, had meaning, had a job. They had to take care of the sheep. That was part of food. And many people, and I do, believe in this case it was prepare these sheep for even sacrifice unto the Lord. So there they were. And yet, who was given that message? Simple shepherds. So I want you to know that we can't rely upon whether we were born in a Christian home or I would even be so careful to say this as gently as I possibly can. But even some homeschool kids, and even some kids in a Christian school, not to assume that they have trusted Christ as Savior. Perhaps it might be good for some of you parents that you would sit down with your children and go through some, some diagnostic dialogue to really understand if they understood Christ. And although they may have made a, quote, profession of faith when they're five or six, and I, I don't want to say that a child cannot trust Christ authentically, genuinely, completely at that time. They can but at the same time, just because they did that or some Sunday school teacher came to you and said, oh, I want you to know your kid trusted Christ, I would encourage you, if you know the simplicity, the accuracy of the gospel, what it means to be lost, what it means to be saved, how to become a Christian, how to become a believer in Christ, that you carefully go through that and periodically take their temperature just to make sure that they fully understand that truth. All right. So having a standing with God uh, that... That doesn't really hold water either, even if you're a religious person saying, I have this connection with God. Which moves us now to the, the fourth here, and it kind of goes a little bit further in verse 18, and it says, And if you bear the name Jew, and you rely upon the law, and you boast in God, and you know His will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. Again, he continues to build through this one long sentence. And when I look at that particular phrase, this is the, the religious person who believes they have what I call a direct access to God. In some of the commentaries I was going through, that phrase, know the will of God, it was like you were knowing the mind of God. Today, today we would say, do you know the word of God? Because really, God's mind is on paper. The will of God is the word of God. I believe here, it's like you know the will of God because you know even more. You, the, you, 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 you have an understanding of the Old Testament, but these Jews are saying, you really know the will of God. Bigger than that. And so I want to expand that to people you might talk to today you might have people you work with that they are so excited, praise God, hallelujah, glory to God, and all that kind of stuff. And then when you get into a conversation with them, you might say, they must be Christian. Look at how they're always praising the Lord, glory to the Lord. And then they're the ones that will come up to you and say, you know, last night the Lord spoke to me about you, and I'd like to tell you what he told me, and he now gives you God's will for your life in some measure. Now, I appreciate the fact that this person loves me. This person might want to give me a caution or a correction or maybe some direction even. But at the same time, I'm very leery of that because what I need to know for my life, God says he'll reveal to me through God's word, not through someone getting an extra message from the Lord. Now I'm saying that now to say this. So you may be around those highly vocal people that seem to leave the impression that they really hear from God. I still would not automatically assume that they're saved. Let's go a little bit further. Let's say with those people, you're able to very lovingly and with full of grace get into a conversation about the plan of salvation. Simply that we're sinners, Jesus is the Savior, not by works, but by faith alone in Him, we have eternal life. And as you go through that discussion, you're finding out that this person says, yes, I know I'm going to heaven because um, I follow the Lord, I obey the Lord. I've always been a Christian. And that always is an issue right there because you never were always a Christian. There was a decision that you had to make, it had to be a point in time You might not remember the day nor the hour, but you know once I was lost, but now I am saved. So there is that point of trusting Christ. Now, if that person in any way gives back to you any element of human effort that they have done other than place their faith alone in Christ, that means, they have, based on their testimony now, that means that they have not trusted Christ as Savior. Which now means that they're telling you that they have a special connection to God, a direct access to God... I'm wondering why would God give a direct access to that person who doesn't know Christ who is now believing or perpetrating a message that is not biblical and then also say what I'm telling you is true. Now how would that be? It doesn't make sense. So instead of putting them down for that, go right back to the simple salvation message that going to heaven is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Well, let's go to the next one. Now verse 19 and 20 here. It says here, and it's a little bit longer passage. Let me read it. Follow along. It says, "Being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of of the truth." So again, he's saying, "Look at you guys are saying now that you have been instructed by the law. You're confident in what you're doing. You're a guide. You're a light. You're a corrector. You're a teacher." Your whole list of things in this one passage alone right here. So that would say that they are believing that they have what we call a high moral standard. Usually religionist people will say that they have a high moral standard. These are people that with a little bit of um, humility might say, oh, I'm not perfect. But at the same time, they will exude to you that they are doing the very best that they possibly can. Now, do this with me for just a moment in your mind. Have you ever met someone who... When you talk to them, they will go through all of their religious rituals that they have done, whether it was praying through the rosary, lighting certain candles, being at church at certain times, going to confession certain times, meeting and doing certain things, wearing certain clothes, not wearing other kind of clothes, in some measure that they are now talking about a high moral standard. Now we get it from not just the rituals. Now we move into the fact that, you know, I I haven't done anything real bad. Now listen carefully. Two weeks ago, we talked, three weeks ago, we talked about the depraved people, the, the rejectionist, and then we talked about the moralist. These people are now saying, not only am I good with my religion, but I'm also good with my morality, and what I'm doing is I'm showing that only good morality is going to come out of my religion. And so that's why it talks about all this Jewish stuff that they were doing here. They were a guide here. They were a teacher here. They were a light here. They are all doing stuff coming from God to the world. And as I look at that, I now remember a little bit about what the Jewish people were like. Listen carefully. God gave them the land. God gave them the chosen people, we might say. But part of that, he was giving them a message. Not just the law, but a message of God through all that they did. And in that message, they were to do primarily three things. Number one, they were to believe it. Remember, the very thing that caused them the most problem when they were in the promised land was was their unbelief. So they didn't always believe it. So they had to believe it. Number two, they had to apply it. We'll talk about that in a moment. They had to put it into their lives. They had to apply it. They had to live it. it. had to be authentic with them. The third thing they had to do, and they did this very poorly and not very often, is they didn't take that message that they had and now take it into the next cultures. Unfortunately, they lived among the other cultures and they became like the other cultures rather than trumping the other cultures with the teachings of God. And so they had a high moral standard. And a lot of them do that, have a high moral standard, and they rely upon that in order to have eternal life or to project a degree of, I know God, you don't, I'm better, you're less. All right, let's go to number six. Number six comes from a little bit longer passage. I'm going to pick it up from one of the other ones because I want your pens to be handy because I'm going to show you some key words in here. Pick it up now at verse 19. Now I'm going to read all the way through verse 23. I know it's a little different in your outline that you have in front of you, but follow along as I read this to you. Chapter 2, verse 19 through 23. But get your pencils ready. Because here they have what we call a superior attitude about themselves. Beginning now at verse 19. And you are confident that you yourselves are a guide. All right, circle the word guide. Okay, you yourself are confident you're a guide. You have a superior attitude. You see yourself as a guide. To the blind, in other words, they can't see, you can, a light to those who are in darkness. So circle the word light. So not only are you a guide, you're also superior because you're the light and they're living in darkness. So you're the light to those who are in darkness. You're the ones to tell everybody else how it should be done. Verse 20, a corrector of the foolish, implying that those Jewish religionists were correct and the rest of the people around them were fools and a teacher. So circle that circle the word guide light corrector teacher of the immature applying again a superior attitude you're the one who knows you're mature the other ones aren't so mature so it's kind of like a, a superior attitude you're more like infants you're like babies you need to be kind of led along we know we're mature we've been there done that you haven't And then it says, And having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, verse 21, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach, circle the word preach, that one shall not steal. Do you steal? So you see a number of different words here. You see the word guide, light, corrector, teacher, preacher. So what they were saying is, or what Paul was saying to them was, Look at the superior attitude that you have, that you know you have, you can... Teach, you can correct, you can preach, you're the light, they're living in darkness, you're right, they're wrong. And those very same religionists still need Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, and how important it is for them to place their faith alone in Jesus Christ. So again, they're relying upon their superiority and their superior attitude. Let's go to now number seven. Number seven. Very similar to the one we said before, but they don't always practice what they preach. I'd like you to follow this in verse 21 through verse 24. They don't practice what they preach. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? No. Do you preach that one shall not steal? Do you steal? Yeah. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Yes. If at least not outwardly, certainly inwardly. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I'm sure you do most of them are kind of interesting in how they do that. They go into another temple, they would get whatever they could out of it, sell it, and then do what they wanted with the money. So they were robbing temples. You who boast in the law, in other words, you got the law, you're the one who has all these teachings. Through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Sure you do. You say you have the law, but you don't live with the law. And then verse 24 says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Let me ask you a question. There's all these words in this little passage of Scripture, and see if you can tell me what they have in common. Look at those words again. Follow along. Look at the words. It starts out with teach, preach, say, abhor, and boast. What do you think those words have in common? What part of the body do you think they have in common? The what? Hint. <laughs> Hint. <laughs> Their mouth. So in other words, they could talk the talk, but they didn't necessarily walk the walk. So they were good talky-talkies, but they weren't really good walky-walkies. And because of all of that, the Gentiles then were looking at their God and blaspheming God because of their particular life. Now this is a great tragedy. And as I follow different biographies, as I read them, I'm amazed at how many of them were so close to Christianity. But in some measure, something about Christianity turned them off and they went another way. For example you've all heard of gandhi and of course whenever we refer to people who are loving and bringing people together and taking care of the poor and being in peace etc we think of gandhi what people don't know is that at one time gandhi had come to america and had gone to the south southern part of america and he was trying to discover the real christ he was on this quest just part of understanding his religion a religion and jesus christ and while he was in the south And of course, if you've ever lived in the South, you're going to find that Christianity is kind of like everywhere in your face. There's some form of Christianity or Christ is mentioned. It's like the Bible buckle of the South. Well, he went into a a restaurant and because of the color of his skin back in his day... They wanted him to sit at a special place. They treated him with great uh, disrespect. They didn't want to be around him. And he said, okay, if this is the part of America that is known to worship Christ, this can't be a genuine Christ or Christianity experience. And so that got him to a point to say that, well, Christ can't be real because he doesn't have the influence or the impact upon Christians. So he's a good God, but he's not the great God or the only God because he can't have the power to change lives. So... He came to that conclusion. The other one is a name you probably don't know, but you've probably heard of its or his effect. His name is Anton LaVey. Anton LaVey is the founder of the Satanist Church. In fact, you have the Satanist Bible that's out there. When I was doing some research behind him, and I'll tell you that this research got me so nauseous, got me so angry, I I just... I don't want to go on feeling, so don't, don't live with this. But for me, I really sensed a sense of oppression. So much so that when I, got, when I, when I earlier on was doing this research, I got one of those Satanist Bibles. And I began to kind of go through to what was the saying? Because what I wanted to do was to compare the various religions and, and show the superiority. When when I was in Bible college, I took the, the sayings, the primary sayings of Confucius. And I took his sayings and I matched it up against scripture because I wanted to show the superiority of scripture. So now I'm going through the history of Anton LaVey. And here's what I found out. Anton LaVey grew up in a family that was involved with carnivals. You've heard of the carnies. Have you ever heard that term before? Carnival, carnies. And do you know where that came from? It came from the word carnal or fleshly. But that's another whole sermon. All right, let's go back to this. So as the carney. And so while his parents were involved in the carnival, he would be a part of that. What happened, though, is that many of those carnies on Sunday would end up trying to put together some kind of a church service. Well, because they traveled from town to town to town to town, they didn't just kind of go into some Bible teaching church in the town. They then used the big top tent because there was no carnival or, or circus or or whatever you want to call it, on Sunday morning. Because in those days, when he was a young boy, most of the people were found going to church, or they kind of shut down everything. You didn't do things on Sunday morning. So these carnies would then gather in the big top, and they would have their church service. And LeVay would say, I'd sit there, and I'd watch these people, and I'd hear them praising God and singing all these songs and praying and, and with passion preaching about Christ. And he said, but I knew these people. I knew what they were doing on Saturday nights. I heard them talk. I heard their language. I heard they would be swapping wives. They would be drinking. All the things they would do to swindle the people who had come to these places. And he says, how can this enter? This cannot be real. And the only person that could be real would be Satan. Because Satan could cause these people to be greater than Jesus to do this kind of stuff. To trump whatever Jesus had good. And then his whole life was in. When I got to that part, I took that Satanist Bible and I did not sell it in a garage sale. I did not give it away. I destroyed it. I said, I've got to get this out of my library. And I've got thousands of books, and you've seen them. Those have been up in my office, other places. My point is, that's a little bit what these Jewish people were doing in their own way. They were saying, I boast in God. I have this label. I'm superior. They were doing all the speaky, speaky, speaky part but they weren't doing the living part of it, and therefore there was that great blasphemy that was going on. Now, if you think that Paul has an angst against just the Jews at Rome, I want you to hold your place here. And if you will, very quickly, I want you to go to Isaiah. It won't be hard to find. Just kind of look to the Old Testament. It's a big book, and it'll open up to Isaiah. And if you will, turn to Isaiah 29. And if you do, I want you to get it. And if it's your Bible, I'd like you to underline these verses here. And while this is an indictment against the Jewish people at that time, by extension, it's to the Jewish nation for doing the same things, even through today. And even to us today, there's a lesson in there for us to apply.